This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Now, as a bonus today, I'm going to actually look from Romans 9.30 right up to Romans 10.21 instead of verse uh, 13. So if you have your Bible, it would be great to have it uh, in your hand and uh, keep it open because we'll look at the passage together quite closely. From Romans 9.30 to Romans 10.21. If you have a Bible, it would be great to keep it open. Or the bulletin you have, um, at least up to verse 13. With that, let me begin by asking God to help us as we look into this amazing book of Romans and ask that His Holy Spirit will engage with us. It's been a busy day or week and we ask that His Spirit will help us to engage with His Word. Would you pray with me? Oh Heavenly Father, we thank you today that we can have your word open up to engage with it. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to calm our hearts, to clear our minds of any um, brain fog that we have, so that we can engage with what Paul has to say to us. Pray for your Holy Spirit to also grant us the strength to respond as we hear your word, so that our hearts will not be hardened, but you will be responding to you. In his name and for Christ's glory. Amen. Now, our world is full of paradoxes. No, it means two things that seem to contradict each other at our first hearing, but they turn out to carry truths. Have you heard of paradox that you enjoy? Let me give you one. For those of you who are busy workers, you may identify what C. Joy Bell says when um, he says this. Men have two greatest fears. The first fear is the fear of being needed. The second fear is the fear of not being needed. Because at work, if you are being needed, you will probably spend too much time there and you can't get home. But if you are not needed, and you'll be out of employment and you get to go home when you don't want to go home. So there's a paradox there. Or Chris Jeremy, he says this, the fear of weakness only strengthens weakness. Or perhaps Eric Hoffer says, an empty head is not really empty, it's just stuffed with rubbish. So you can't feel the empty head unless you clear the rubbish in it. Well, not all paradoxical quotes that we hear or read are true, but there are times where we do hear and recognize that what seems to contradict can hold truth even when we do not fully understand it perfectly. Last week we hear from Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 29, where he speaks of how God is always sovereign in, choose, in who he saves, in whom he gives mercy, and in whom he hardens their hearts. And today, though we will still be looking at the same theme, Paul turns our, um, our focus from a God perspective that speaks of God's sovereign choice and overflowing grace to um, a human perspective of how human is still responsible to respond rightly to God. And to understand this paradox, Paul begins today's passage with Romans chapter 9, verse 30 to 31. So if you have your Bible open up, it would be great because I will read these first two verses for us. 
What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursue the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Now Paul begins with a paradox that seems to be counterintuitive. The first statement goes like this. The non-physical Israel, they did not chase after righteousness. That is a right relationship with God. They end up obtaining it. The second statement says, The physical Israel who chased after righteousness through the law did not get it. So the Gentiles were not seeking God. In fact, they could not possibly have done so, humanly speaking. They are given this righteousness because they become right with God when they heard about Jesus and they put their faith in Him. But meanwhile, the physical Israel, they chase after this righteousness by trying to keep the law. They seek to gain a right relationship with God through all their efforts and all their strength and they fail miserably. They just could not attain it. So after making this seemingly paradoxical statement, Paul begins to explain the truth behind this counterintuitive statement. Well, why do Gentiles obtain this righteousness by not working for it? And why can't the physical Israel obtain it when they work so hard for it? And the reason is because, verse 32, look at it. The Israelites have mistaken that by their own effort, they can be righteous enough before God. No, the reality is that they cannot because no one is capable to achieve God's righteousness by their own effort. The right relationship with God can only be received by faith, by humbly and obediently putting their trust in God's Christ to do the impossible for them, which was what the Gentiles did, not keeping the law but having faith. Well, I can imagine as people listen to that, the Jews and Gentiles, not everyone will be convinced by Paul's explanation. And so like previous passages, Paul needs to go right back to Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. And his point is this, that God's plan has always been for people to trust in Him rather than to trust in their own ability. So here Paul begins by quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, 14, and chapter 28, verse 16, and he says this, As it is written, meaning scriptures, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Now what does this Old Testament quote actually mean? Why does Paul put it here? Well, here is the context of this Old Testament quotes. In the time of the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Paul, God gave this warning. He warns that because the people of Israel and Judah, God's people, have refused to fear or trust God, but they have turned away from God, God says He will become, chapter 8, 14 of Isaiah, a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. The people of Israel who trust in themselves and turn away from God, God says He will be the rock that will stumble them. But that's not the end. For those who turn back, however, and trust in God, God will save them. And these are the words of Isaiah 28. In fact, He says, God says, they are chains with death 
will be knocked, will be broken. Listen to this that Paul has quoted from Isaiah 28. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of dead will not stand. So this time, Isaiah speaks of a stone that God laid in Zion. God laid a stone in Zion, and this stone is the reference of the promised son of David, the king for Israel, that he will come to save all who turns to him. But this king, the rock in Zion, he will also bring justice swiftly to all who are against him. Because here's the reality, there cannot be two kings in one kingdom. Speaking to the sinful Israelite leaders there, God has declared through Isaiah in this passage that they can either repent, they bow their knees to this, to this rock on Zion and be saved, or they can rebel against this rock and be crushed by it. So coming back to Romans, where Paul has quoted this from Isaiah, he began to explain to the Israelites of his time, Paul's time, that Israel fails to obtain righteousness through the law because they did not seek righteousness by faith in God. They did not seek God's king, but they have confidence in themselves. And when they do that, they will stumble on the rock of Zion. Now, as we listen to Paul speaking this to his people, his kinsmen, the Israelites, we might be tempted to say, Paul is just cold-hearted. But surely he's not, because if you were here last week, he was crying out for his people. And again, look at what he says now in chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. He goes out for his own kinsmen. He goes out to speak of his longing and then his prayer to God, O God, that they may turn back and trust in God's rock of Zion and be safe. No, Paul knew firsthand, and so he testified in verse 2, how zealous Israel can be. How zealous they were for God, but yet their zeal was not based on knowledge. Because after all, how many times have Paul experienced the zeal of Israel? That as he goes into his missions, that they follow him, and they not only are zealous against Jesus, they were zealous for him to die. Paul knew about their zealousness, but their zeal is not right. And Paul says, zeal that they have is without knowledge, because they did not know God's righteousness. In fact, they refused to submit to God's righteousness, who is Jesus Christ. You know, there's an ancient father by name Augustine of Hippo. Have you heard of him? Uh, Augustine, he puts it this way, it is better to limp a way to, uh, to limp on the right way than to run with all our might into the fire. Imagine if you're in, in a cinema and the cinema is on fire. I, I, was, I have experienced that once. It's better for you to be in the crowd and limp and get in through the exit than run with all your might on empty space right into that fire. That's what Augustine says. Zeal doesn't save you if it's in the wrong direction. Why you are pursuing with all your might will not take away your sins if you are heading in the wrong direction. So neither could they please God if they are heading against God. 
which is what's happening for the people of Israel. Now, Paul knew that by turning away from Jesus and by trying to achieve righteousness by themselves, his people are choosing to reject the stone of Zion and refusing to submit to God's righteousness. In fact, they will have missed the whole point on the law they were clinging on. Because this law is all about Jesus. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Actually, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. No, Christ Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all of God's law. Everything that the Jews were holding on, they point to Christ Jesus. He's the culmination of all of that. If Israel really pursues the law, you know where they'll end up? They'll end up trusting in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Because Jesus is the culmination of the law. No, now friends, even though you and I, we are, we're not Israelites, we're listening on, we're not Israelites, but this is still true for us. We need to recognize that we can never get into God's righteousness by our own effort. We can never get a place in heaven by our own means. It will be a total mistake to think of God as an examiner who gives out exam papers and those who do well enough will get into heaven. But equally, it's a mistake to think that God will help those who help themselves. Have you heard of that? God will help those who help themselves. Maybe some of you have, some of you have not. It's not in the Bible. God, if God helps those who help themselves, or God is the examiner, heaven will be hell. Because when, what, who will go to heaven will be those who either are the elites, who have done all they can and they went in, or those who, with God's help and them a little bit, they contributed and they end up in heaven. And what will heaven look like? Heaven will be a place of eternity where people will eternally compare with each other how much contribution you have. Well, God did bring us here, but I contribute a bit. How much do you? Not as much. And heaven will, toler- will totally be an intolerable place for us. So therefore, those who trust in their ability to earn righteousness will never be able to earn it. Rather, only by putting our faith in God's rock of Zion, on Christ Jesus, can we be saved. Now, perhaps some of us all People we know at least, you know, they never recognize that we really need, or they really need Jesus. Or they really, or they really need to come to God, God's way. If you know of people like that, have you? Perhaps you have. Perhaps you know them. It's unsurprising. Because that would just um, be part of the paradox. The paradox that we, in our sinful nature, we do not seek God, we do not want God. But it is God who has to come to find those who do not want Him and bring them in. Or perhaps we or people we know are tempted to trust that we can be good enough. We have Jesus, but we can be good enough, or at least better than most, to get into heaven. And that is exactly how the Israelites ended up by trusting in their ability, now that they have the law, to keep it and to get in. But if, if you and I, we are people who have come to trust in Jesus and we think about our own life just at this moment for a while, just think about how you ended up where you are, 
then you and I will recognize how true the paradox is. It was never you or me who have found the Lord or earned the righteousness. Because we were walking the other direction where he came along and bring us to himself to bring the gospel of Christ so that we can believe in him and come to him. So God's righteousness is given to us, is not earned by us, even though we did have to respond to him when we hear his message. But now, suppose some Jews, as they listen on, they may still want to argue in verse 5. Perhaps this could be what it sounds like. Paul, are you sure that God's righteousness is only given or received through faith in Jesus? Didn't Moses write this in Leviticus 18.5? Moses said this, The person who does this thing, that is the law, will live by them. Didn't Moses teach that we can earn righteousness by keeping the law? To that, Paul would clarify that the keeping of the law is never separated from having faith in God. We'll come and see that soon. The keeping of the law is never separated from having faith in God. Because here's the thing. Let me give you the context of Leviticus 18.5. That's quoted in verse 5 there. The context is that it is a command for Israel, who have just been saved, not to behave like the Egyptians that they have left who did evil in God's eyes. And if you have flipped to Leviticus 18.5, actually what brackets this verse, top and bottom, is actually this declaration by God. That God declares, I am the Lord your God. After this, below he says, and I am the Lord. It is actually, while they are calling them to obey, it is actually a call for Israel to be faithful to God. And so the person who does this thing, that's the law, will be saved by them only because they have obeyed, their obedience reflects their ongoing faith in God. Because they remember this word, I am the Lord your God. The law was never meant to be an isolated means to earn eternal life. It is obedience in response to the faith that they have as they remember, I am the Lord your God. So to prove that, Paul wants to prove that. He quotes Moses' very last sermon before he dies. Before the Israelites go into the promised land and he can't, he gave this at the end of Deuteronomy 30. uh, And Paul quotes verse 12 to 14 of Deuteronomy 30, which in your Romans 10 is verse 6 to 10. And then he adds some commentaries of his own in. Let me read to you Romans 10, 6 to 10. The righteousness that is by faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Now in Deuteronomy 30 verse 12 to 14, you almost have the same passages in in yellow there. Moses was declaring to the people that God's command is not beyond their reach. Paul is, um, Moses is telling them God's command is within your reach. So you must not look to heaven and say, who can possibly climb up there? Or to look down to the depths and say, who can possibly be victorious over death? 
They are not to doubt in their hearts, saying God has given them a path that is impossible to take. Rather, they are to recognize that God's word is within reach. In fact, God's word is in them. It's a call to obediently put their faith in the God who has spoken to them. The point of Moses' quote that Paul has put in here is that they need to have faith in God. Now, what is the significance of this last sermon of Moses in Deuteronomy 30 was that actually in this sermon, go back and read it, and you find that Moses, while he's giving all these last words, he also prophesied. He prophesied this. He said that Israel will continue to rebel against God. They'll keep rebelling and rebelling and rebelling until God's judgment will come and they'll be eventually exiled to the ends of the world. That's in Moses' time. It happens hundreds of years out. They'll be exiled to the ends of the world, but God will pull His redeemed people back to Himself and He'll circumcise their hearts. And after that, they will love God with all their hearts and soul and they will live. That is part of the sermon, even as he asked them to not look up and doubt and not to look down and doubt. So in the end, again, it is not their ability to keep the law that they will be saved, but by trusting in God's word. And so those who put their faith in God, says Moses, and so quotes Paul here, they should not grumble and say, who can ascend to heaven? Or who will descend to the deep? Rather, those who put their faith in God's word will recognize that God has really done the impossible by drawing us back to himself through Jesus Christ, the rock of Zion, who has fulfilled the law. In fact, God has really brought Christ down from heaven and God has really raised Christ up from the depths for life that he will do what is impossible for us. So the job for us is actually to trust in him to do the impossible work. Now what Moses called the people to do, even in Deuteronomy, was to have obedient faith in God's word because that is the only way to be saved. And Paul says that their faith in God will actually lead them to have faith in Christ. In fact, do you know in in the Bible, um, it says that Moses' faith in God's promise is equivalent to his, his faith in Christ's fulfillment. Do you know that? Let me read to you the passage that talks about this. It's in Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26. Let me read this for us. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And listen to this. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasure of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Just pause and look at this for a short moment. Now Moses, he, he never regarded keeping the law or his self-achievement as the means to earning his righteousness. Rather, he lived in obedience and on faith in God which in times reveals that his faith in God is actually his faith in Christ because Christ is God's promise. So even in Old Testament, that is how it happens that it is in Christ that he will receive his reward. 
So now coming back to Romans 10, verse 9 to 10, Paul writes this in the context of what we have heard. He says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You know, here Paul is saying that God's way of righteousness and salvation has always been and is now revealed in Jesus Christ. So that anyone who believes in Christ as his Lord or her Lord will be saved. And to add on, you know, Paul keeps stacking it up to seal this point that righteousness comes by faith in God's Christ, the rock of Zion. Now Paul wants to quote two more Old Testament passages that speaks that faith in the heart and expressed in words have always been how God brings his people. And he quotes two prophets, Isaiah and Joel. Let me read to you um, Romans 10, 11 to 13. It's taken from Isaiah 28, verse 16, Joel 2, verse 32. Paul quotes and says, Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here is where the gate of salvation is flung wide open. And there is no difference whether it's a Jew or a Gentile. The Lord Jesus is the Lord of all. and He richly blesses everyone. Everyone who comes and puts their faith in him for rescue. Now dear friends, I just want to pause here as we let this sink in that Paul is not giving new things. He's giving what has always been there. That he wants to bring this to a point that when we declare that Jesus is Lord, we are concurrently renouncing that we are Lord of our lives. Because remember, a kingdom can never have two kings. Not in God's kingdom, not in our lives. So when we say that Jesus is Lord, we are concurrently saying, and I am not. That's Paul's point. Those who have renounced their own lordship and acknowledged Christ as their Lord and they are able to believe in their heart and confess and profess out of their mouth. God says these people will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is great news. Great news for everyone. Now the question is, is that a great news for you and me or those around us that we love? Is that the great news that they have? Now, it was for the Gentiles in Paul's time, that's how it begins to this passage, who did not pursue righteousness, but yet they obtained it when they believed in Jesus. But this is not good news for the Israelites in Paul's time, because they choose to reject that, and they want to pursue their own way into righteousness, and they will not obtain it. Is that a great news? For you and me, is that a great news for those that we love and those who around us says that they are Christians? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now to link all of that, Paul comes back um, today with one last point, a big point, to draw everything together. He says um, that everyone who obtains God's righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus we can be sure that it was never an accident or a personal discovery. No, any unexpected person who comes to become a Christian, it was always God sent. 
And there are always clear steps to it. It was not an accident. There are clear steps because God sends messengers to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for us to bump into, so-called, and then save us into as we respond in faith in Jesus in calling him Lord. Look at how Paul explains that. Verse 14 and 15, Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? No, here comes that famous missionary passages that wherever you go, you're going to hear a mission talk. This is one of the top tens that you have on missions because it so clearly explains the steps to faith. It demands human response. It demands human responsibilities. No one gets to sit around and wait for the voice that comes in and tell you everything you need to know and you just say, yep, I believe. No need the Bible, no need anything else. It just comes in the night. It doesn't happen this way. For anyone who calls on Jesus Christ to be saved, Paul says, need to believe. And for anyone to believe in Jesus Christ, they need to first hear the message. And for anyone to hear the message, someone must preach it. And for someone to preach it, God must send them. So who are those who are being sent? Well, they will be everyone who have received the message themselves, including Paul. That's why he's doing what he is doing. It was never by accident anyone gets saved. It is God's overflowing mercy that we see this familiar picture, generations after generations, Begins in Paul's time, it continues now, it continues way after we die if the Lord has not returned. That Christians, you have Christians that will willingly sacrifice and even give up their lives so that they can go and preach the gospel. And as they preach the message, people will hear the message, some will believe and they will repent, and then they will call on Jesus to be Lord and they renounce their own lordship and they come saved. And then these believers, because they have surrendered themselves to Jesus as Lord, they start to obey in faith and it ends them up in obeying God's command and then they go forth again sacrificially to offer this good news to anyone they can so that more people like them will stumble into it even though they were not looking for it. That was how you and I ended up in Christ and that is how the future generation will end up in Christ. They will not be looking for it. They will stumble upon it because God sent them out who, people who will give up their lives for that. That is how some sinners are saved. But Paul brings out this reality. And the reality is not all sinners who hear this message will be saved. Only those who respond in faith. Because from your experience, from my experience, from our Church experience, we know that not all will come to Jesus just because they hear the message. And this is the truth all the time. And we're expected to respond rightly to God's message and not just ignore it. We are responsible to receive. We are responsible when we reject the message given to us freely. So in Paul's time, many of the Jews they did not respond in faith and the same goes for the Jews centuries before Paul's time. And look at verse 15 to 17. Actually expounds this same thing, but much earlier before his time. Listen to this. As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accept the good news 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Now, Paul is saying that the Jews have chosen to reject God's good news even in Isaiah's time. Now, many did not put their faith in God's good news, and so Paul, you know where he's quoting from? He's quoting from one of the most famous passages. The passage, the passage of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52-53. Here's the quote that Paul takes from Isaiah. Isaiah 52 verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Now Isaiah in his time, he carried this same great news that God is sending his suffering servant to save people by dying for their sins. That is great news. But yet, not all will accept Isaiah's message. And because of that, Isaiah continued in Isaiah 53. He says this, verse 1, Who who has believed our message? What's the message Isaiah has? That he was pierced for transgression, he was crushed for iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Such a great news that Isaiah had. Salvation through God's chosen one, the, mes- the message from God's sent messenger, the message about the suffering servant who is a death risen king. Yet Isaiah cried out, Lord, who has believed our message? And so Paul concludes the paradox of his own people as he writes on. Romans 10, verse 18. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Now Paul, he quotes the words of King David, Psalms 19, that people have creation to look at. People have the law of God to hear and hear God's salvation. So no one, especially the Israelites, they can ever plead ignorance of not having heard, heard God's word, of not having heard God's word and call for them to trust Him. They have no excuse because they have creation and they have God's law to point them to trust God. But yet Israel, who understands, would choose to reject God's word. So verse 19, Paul says, Again I ask, did Israel not understand? The point is they did understand but they did not choose to receive it. And so finally, Paul, for one last time today, he quotes Moses and Isaiah just one more time, one more time to explain that what has been happening in this paradox right at the beginning of today's passage is a result of God's judgment as well as Israel's responsibility. So what is God's judgment, if you ask, in the paradox whereby many Gentiles who didn't Seek it, believe. Many Israelites who could have did not. What is God's judgment in that paradox in the beginning? Well, here is the amazing revelation. The paradox that Paul speaks about, the Gentiles, about the Israelites, you know what? Two other people have already spoken about that. Moses and Isaiah have spoken about this same paradox long ago. 
that God would save Gentiles who are not looking for God to make Jews envious. And so verse 19, Paul quotes Moses back in Deuteronomy 32, 21. Listen to this. Moses says, this is what God says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. God's judgment on Israel was to love those who have no prior understanding of God, the Gentiles. God's judgment on Israel is to love those who are not His, who are not looking for Him, and He loved them as a judgment. In fact, not just Moses, Isaiah said the same thing in Isaiah 65. Let me read to you what Paul has quoted in the last two verses of Romans 10. Romans 10, 20, 21 is taken from Isaiah 65, verse 1 and 2. Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now here's the most amazing picture that we can observe from our human history when we look back. Now in God's judgment, even as many Gentiles hear the gospel and they become Christians, even as many Jews refuse to accept God because of judgment. God is still extending His overflowing mercy to the rest of the world. His mercy to disobedient and obstinate people. All day long, God is like this loving Father who is stretching out His hand to those He loves, but they do not want to hold His hand. That is God. No one deserves to be saved. Not the Gentiles. We didn't look for God. We did not desire for God. Not the Israelites who depend on their ability to keep the law apart from God without faith. But yet it is God's overflowing mercy as He stretched out His hand that we get to hear the gospel, you and me, and we are able to believe in Jesus Christ and what is true to Israel is true even today, that God is still holding out His mercy all day long so that the mercy of God can be received if they will hold His hand. The message of Christ, that those who rebel, they will turn back to, Christ, to, to God in faith in Christ and be saved while there is still time. So dear friends, as I wrap up today for us, today's passage, they are just some serious implication that we must engage with. I'll just give two, but it's worth thinking of more if you continue to think about But here are two for us. First of all, as we recognize that God is sovereign, He has total control of everything, He is also the God who holds out His hand of salvation to our world through history and through geography, so that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord who puts their trust in God's word, in God's son, in the rock of Zion, the king of the world, will be saved. He's the sovereign God who is in control, but he's also the God who stretched out his hand with a message out there, so whoever holds his hand gets saved without doing anything. But for those of us who have not called Jesus as Lord or who have loved ones who are not yet calling Jesus as Lord, that we should persuade them 
and ourselves that while there is time to grab hold of the hand of God that's outstretched to obstinate people because we have no excuse on the final day because we have already heard the gospel. But for those of us who have believed in Jesus, will we continue to call on Jesus our Lord and King to give thanks daily for His overflowing mercy on those days where we snatch kingship back from Him our own lives, that we'll repent and renounce our own lordship and return kingship back to God. Because there's no two kings in one kingdom. There are no two kings in your life or my life. That's the first thing. And finally, the second, both individually as a church, will we keep reminding each other that we need to proclaim the great news of salvation because faith only comes from hearing the good news. We shouldn't expect God to just have that voice out there to talk to other people. He has given us the outstretched hand and we are the messengers of the outstretched hand. So we must, like Moses, like Isaiah, like Paul and all after them to preach the great news of salvation so that some will stagger in and be saved the way that you and I have staggered in to the kingdom of heaven. There will be those who will not, but it's not our call for how they respond. But what we have as a responsibility and a response is we have received the outstretched hand and mercy of God. And that's what we have to continue until the day God's outstretched hand is pulled back and Christ returns. Would you pray together as we think of today's passage um, as a church? Heavenly Father, what a paradox it seems that those who did not search for you found you because you have found us and those who try to reach you by their own effort can never do so. But how amazing it is because we recognize that we will never be able to reach you and we by ourselves will never want to come to you on your terms. So Father, we thank you for your outstretched hand of mercy to a people who are obstinate in the past and even today in our time. And it is in Christ when we hear this great news that we stumble in because you have sent messengers out to make us fall into your grace and your mercy that our hearts get circumcised to love you with all our hearts and with all our souls and to live that we seek to obey in faith, not because obedience saves us, but because faith spurs us on to want to love and obey you. So Father, as we engage with Romans more in the weeks to come, Father, we pray that you help us realize how great and overflowing is your grace and mercy to us. For Christ's glory we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.